and the thought of the former pastor and theologian who is now deceased, Adrian Rogers, I would like to pose a question to us today as God's people in this congregation. The question that I would like us to ponder is, who is the meanest member of our church? Look around. Take a mental poll. At the end of the service, if we were to take a poll, who would be the last person standing? In James chapter 3, verse 6, James tells us who is the meanest member, not only of our church, of our congregation, but of every church and every congregation. James chapter 3, verse 6, James says that the tongue is a fire. A world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. James tells us that the meanest member of the body is the tongue. And I pray today that you will allow the Lord to have total access to your heart and to your mind and that we would receive what the Lord is saying in order that we would respond daily with pure speech. If you would be so kind, stand to your feet and turn to James chapter 3. James chapter 3. As James shows us how to control the meanest member of the body. James chapter 3, starting at verse 1, going down to verse 12. James chapter 3, verse 1. And the precious, authentic, inerrant, powerful, magnificent word of God reads, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a force is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. 
For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and curses, my brothers. These things ought not be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Let us pray. Father, we come to you this morning as fallen human beings in desperate need of your continual grace and mercy. We pray, Father God, that you will help us to, to be hearers of your word today. Help us, Father God, to listen with maturity and and put James' words in the context of the gospel. Help us, Father God, not to despair as we see ourselves in this mirror. But, Father God, to cry out to you with desperation, Father. To beg you for mercy. To accept the forgiveness that you are willing to give. Help me, Father God, to be faithful to the preaching of your word, not to preach to please men, but to please you, Father. Help me, Father God, to preach with the only one motive, and that is to glorify you for giving your son. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Christ's name we do beg. Amen. We continue our series, Developing a Mature Faith. find ourselves this morning in James chapter 3. And the interesting thing about James is this. This book has been contributed to James, the half-brother of Jesus. Let us stop and let us ponder that thought for a second. The author of this book was brothers with our Savior. Could you imagine living and growing up under the same roof as Jesus? Could you imagine as James is penning this letter the thoughts that he was thinking as he is going from subject to subject, comparing himself to Christ and thinking about how Christ perfectly exemplified everything that he is speaking of. James, while Jesus was on earth, was not a believer in Christ until after he resurrected in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We read that when Jesus rose from the grave that he appeared to, to 500 and to the apostles and also to James, his brother. Before that point, James was not a believer in Jesus Christ, which leads me to believe 
that James probably naturally had some issues with his brother. Growing up under the same roof as Jesus, never seeing him sin, never seeing him stumble over his words. Could you imagine that? The favoritism that his parents may have even given Jesus. If I was James, I would have been trying to trip Jesus up all day. I would have been trying to put him in the most difficult situations. I would have been trying to get him to gossip, to slander, to lie. All for the fact that I could look at my parents and say, see, (laughs) he isn't so perfect after all. Thereby solidify myself (laughs) as as a good son. The only words that James heard Jesus say that was probably offensive to him as they were to the rest of his listeners probably except his disciples occurred probably in Matthew chapter 23 when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees the religious leaders of the day and he calls them a brood of vipers bloodsuckers he asked them he said how can you how do you expect to escape the fires of hell or when Jesus was teaching a bible study And one day his mother and his brothers came to his disciple and said, go get Jesus. We need him. And Jesus, in the middle of the Bible study, looked around and he asked the question. He said, who is my mother or my brother? It's he or she that does the will of my father. As James is pinning this great, great passage that we have just read he is pinning it in context in the context of seeing his brother and now savior and how his brother impacted the lives of many with pure speech and how his brother spoke with truth and yet grace As we read this passage today, we need to see the importance of us being able to tame the meanest member. And we need to see the importance of us seeking to please Christ with our speech. In order to do that, we are going to look at four things that I believe that James points out clearly that can help us to tame and control this mean member. The first thing that we must recognize if we are going to tame the meanest member is that we must recognize that taming the tongue is difficult. We must recognize that taming the tongue, controlling the meanest member, it is a difficult task. Look at your Bibles, verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. (laughs) James begins and he tells this audience, he says, listen, Many of you are too immature to become official teachers in the body of Christ because you have not yet learned to tame the tongue. And we see that this is an issue throughout the book of James. In fact, in verse chapter 1, verse 19, we see a big emphasis being given to those who are in these congregations with these Jews who are dispersed among the nations. As James tells them, he admonishes them, he says, listen... You ought to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. James's congregation would come together and, and instead of listening to one sermon and the preacher just preaching, many times what they would do it would be more like Sunday school 
Well, they will be in a circle or in a small house. And as they're teaching the word of God, James notices that everyone's talking. Everyone's looking for an opportunity to show how much they know, but no one is listening. And James tells them, you need to be twice as quick to hear as to speak. God has given us two ears and one mouth and our tongue is walled behind teeth. James says, my brothers, not many of you should become teachers. When he's talking about teachers, he means in an official capacity. In an official capacity. There's a lot of teachers who probably wanted to be teachers for the wrong reason. They probably desired to be teachers because they saw that people came to the teachers, these rabbis in Jewish culture, with great respect. Or they thought that it would be possibly cool for twice a week for people to gather around and to listen to them speak. And James says, this should not be your desire. This should not be what you seek after for. There's a reason. Look at the text for. You know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. James, in order to show his listeners the importance of us not seeking to just talk all the time and be a teacher, he lifts up the day of judgment and says that many of you should not be teachers because you have not yet learned to tame the tongue. And he says you especially shouldn't be teachers because you should have in your mind a vision of the coming judgment. And this vision of the coming judgment should remind you and should let you to show you that one day everyone who is a teacher they will be judged with greater strictness this is not just James thought this is Paul's thought we read in 2 Timothy chapter 4 in a view beautiful passage where Paul tells Timothy these words he says Timothy preached the word He says, be ready in season and out of season, reprove and rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching. A a very known passage that many people love. But just before he told Timothy those words, he lifted up the day of judgment. He reminded Timothy that those who teach and preach God's word, that one day they will be held accountable before the judge. Before that, he says, I charge you in the presence of God in Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. He says, the charge that I give you is a charge with judgment in mind. Then he closed this passage the same way Paul does in 2 Timothy. He closes the passage by saying the same words, similar words in verse 8. He says, henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do you see this? He says, everyone's not cut out to teach and preach words because everyone does not have maturity. And maturity shows up. In our speech. And what do we say? If there is someone here today who's wrestling with a call for ministry and you have a a desire and aspire to be a a teacher of God's word in official capacity at the church and a preacher of God's word, I beg you to remember the future judgment. 
Remember that one day those who are teachers and preachers that they will be held with accountable with greater strictness just as Jesus often throughout the New Testament as he his harshest speech did not come to the one who was a prostitute did not come to the lost but his harshest speech came to the Pharisees the teachers of the day. If you feel a call do a couple things for me number one pray profusely. Pray profusely, pray passionately, ask the Lord to give you confirmation and to give you peace. Also, look at your life. Make sure that your life is a lifestyle that is fighting and hating sin. Also, make sure that the pastor and the congregation has seen your gift and has affirmed your gift. But most importantly, listen to yourself speak and ask yourself the question, when I talk and when I see a need to talk, am I talking because I want to glorify God and further his kingdom or to have people see me and my glory? See, the problem with taming the tongue, the reason that taming the tongue is so difficult is because of our depravity. The word depravity is because of our our sin nature. Look at the text. For we all stumble in many ways. James says that we all are sinners. He affirms with all of the word of God, says we all are depraved. We all have been affected by Adam's sinfulness. And I like that he said we all, not you all. He he realized that he was a sinner just like they were. We're sinners, but we are repentant sinners. And then he goes on and says, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. Now, given the context of this letter and what James has just said, that we all stumble, we conclude, and looking at this, that James, by the use of the word perfect, he does not mean perfect in sinless perfection, but rather he is using this term to communicate maturity. He's saying that the person who has tamed the tongue, the person who has control of their tongue, is a person who is spiritually mature. In fact... That is what this entire letter, that is James' hope in this entire letter, is to get his listeners to desire and to yearn for spiritual maturity and to show them that spiritual maturity comes and and is shown by how we speak in the midst of our tests and tribulations. James chapter 1. See, James chapter 1, verse 1 through 12, he is telling us that we ought to, how we ought to respond when our faith is tested. He tells us two ways that the believer should respond. When we are being tested and crushed, he says the first way that we should respond is by counting it all joy. Other words, he says by using our tongue to praise God. And then he goes on to say that the second way that a believer, a mature believer responds is he responds by praying to God. If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask God and God gives it freely. And then James goes on from verses 12 to to, to 19. He shows us that when a person is tempted, what a mature person says, a mature person does not say God is tempting me. But a mature person sees that when we are tempted and when we fall into sin, it is our own lustful desires that lead us there. When you go home, I want you to look at the context of James. Read through James and notice that in every single subject that he's going through, he is always putting emphasis on what a person 
says and ought to say. Every passage. Chapter 3, mature person doesn't boast. Even when he's leaving the house, he says, he doesn't say, I'll see you later. He says, if the Lord wills, I'll see you later. Chapter 4, two people are fighting, two people are quarreling. James asks a question, why are you fighting? Why are you quarreling? Is it not because you both have unselfish desires that are not met? You do not have so you murder. He's talking to the church. He's not talking about murking somebody. He's not talking about murdering somebody with a gun. He's saying with your words. Spiritual maturity shows up in what we say. Abel also, James says, to bridle the whole body. (laughs) James is saying that the person who has tamed their tongue is a person who also is fighting sin, is a person who, like Paul, has committed to put to death the deeds of the flesh, is a person who is beating their body into submission. And I believe here that James, when he's talking about taming the tongue, he's not just talking about not saying the wrong things, but he's also talking about learning to say the right things at the appropriate time. Some of us, our problem is not talking too much. Some of us, it's talking too little. It's not reproving. It's not rebuking. It's not standing up for the sake of the gospel. This book about spiritual maturity calls us to look at our own selves and to see that we are imperfect beings and to see that taming the tongue is not easy. How should we respond as we look in this mirror, which is the word of God? How should we respond to this difficult task? My prayer is that God would give us all the grace that he gave Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. The Bible says that Isaiah sees the glory of the Lord fill the temple. He sees the king and he looks and he cries out. He says, woe is me for I am lost. And then he goes on and says, for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. When a a person has seen the glory of God, when we have truly experienced Christ, we are constantly coming with a woe is me. Father, I am poor. Father, I can't help myself. Please help me to tame my tongue. And God is faithful. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 6, after Isaiah cried that, the word of God in verse 6 says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongues from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Our only hope for taming our tongue is that Christ by his grace would touch our tongue and that he would speak to us constantly and remind us that he has atoned for our sins, that he has substituted himself for us. Not only must we recognize that taming the tongue is difficult, but we also must recognize that the tongue is deceitfully powerful, that the tongue is deceitfully powerful. Look at your text. James goes on to say, 
in verse 3, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder. Wherever the will of the pilot directs, so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts great things. It's deceitfully powerful, James says. And he gives us two illustrations, and by that what I mean is that the tongue is the, the small member. It's the small member that we often don't really think about or pay a whole lot of attention to. How many of us daily sit back on our bed and reflect about how we communicate it throughout the day? It's small. We will pay attention to how much weight we think that we've gained or reflect upon the jeans that we could not fit or the haircut that we thought could have been better or the song selection on the radio that's getting annoying. But very few times do we often sit down and just reflect about how we have been using our tongue. And yet James said it is the tongue that is controlling us. And he gives two wonderful illustrations. James is great. In fact, he makes preaching pretty easy. He gives you all the illustrations you need. <laughs> and he, he, the illustrations that he gives is he causes us and tells us that we ought to look at a horse. And how a, a horse, a, a big horse, the average riding horse, weighs 1,000 pounds to 12,000 pounds. And he says this big horse is not in control when a bit is put in the horse's mouth. You can take a, a teenager, a small child, who's able to reach the horse's mouth, and that child can control which way that horse is going. And then he uses another illustration here. He says, take, for example, a big ship. And though this ship is big and though the winds seem to be controlling it, what really is controlling this ship is the rudder that the pilot is using. And by the way, this rudder, it isn't a great big rudder. It isn't the half the size of a ship. This rudder is small. Wait, may we know that our tongue, though it is small, it is deceitfully powerful. And the way in which we use it can stir and cause our whole life to go a certain way. The proverb says this. It says in 1821, the power of life and death are in the tongue. The power of life and death is in the tongue? Are you kidding me? This small member? How and why is the power of life and death in the tongue? The reason why life and death is in the tongue is because, as Jesus says, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Check this out. What a person consumes themselves with what a person listens to constantly and absorbs themselves in, it is shaping the way that they view the world. And that person then speaks about what they have consumed themselves with. 
And that speech, as Sinclair Ferguson, the great theologian, says, our speech betrays us. <laughs> our speech betrays us. Our speech tells us what's really going on in our heart. And then what we say and constantly say is what we do. And what we do becomes a habit. And that habit shapes our destiny. That's why we have to be very careful. We have to listen to ourselves when we speak. You know, some people say, after a big argument with someone, They'll go to the person and say, you know, yesterday I said that your head was as big as young arena when we were arguing. And I just start catting on how big your head. I really didn't mean that. Jesus said, that's a lie. <laughs> you may didn't mean it today after you calmed down and think about it, thought about it. But when people say things, that is really how they feel at the moment. Our tongues often betrays us. You know, there's a funny story that I read about a frog who wanted to cross a pond but was too lazy to hop through it. So he sees two birds and he goes to the birds and he gives the birds two sticks and says, I have an idea. Can you both put these sticks in your mouth. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to bite these sticks and I want you to fly me to halfway and then the other bird, you can lay me down on this leaf and then the other one, I want you to fly me the other way. And the birds look and they agree. They say, sure, we'll do it. And the frog bites the stick and the birds are taking them in the sky, taking the frog in the sky and a human is watching and looking and he says, wow, look at that. A bird is carrying a frog. I wonder whose idea is that? And the frog in midair opens his mouth and says, It was my idea. And falls to the water. <laughs> Many of us, we are failing and we are falling because we have not learned not only what we should say, not only how we should say it, but when we should say it. Our tongues are deceitfully powerful. The third thing that James shows us in the text that we must recognize. We must recognize the tongue's potential darkness. We must recognize the tongue's potential darkness. So listen. How great is a forest, picking up in the middle of verse 5, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And we see this imagery again of a, a small bit, a small rudder, now a small fire. He says how great a forest is set ablaze because of a small fire that starts. And what James is saying is how great destruction comes as a result of the tongue. One of the most spectacular and devastating events of the 19th century happened in 1871 in my hometown, Chicago, Illinois. And what happened has been termed and is now known as the Chicago Fire. 
Legend has it that there was a cow in a burn and the cow kicked over a lantern and the lantern then caught to some hay and the, the whole burn just, barn just began to catch fire. Two days later, after all the smoke had cleared, great damage was done to Chicago. According to Chicago.org, $200 million worth of damages occurred to the city. 300 people lost their lives. 100,000 people were now homeless. All because a cow kicked over a lantern. A small fire catches a blaze of a forest, and we see this all the time in, in California, in dry places, and that forest fire just keeps going, and it takes a lot of resources to stop off. And, and there are a lot of us in the body of Christ who are constantly kicking over lanterns, who are constantly using our words that, th- that we think is small, but we don't see the destruction that is doing the destruction that is doing to our wives, the destruction that is doing to our husbands, to our brothers and to our sisters. Some of us have siblings that we barely talk to because of something that they said 20 years ago. Small fire leads to great destruction. Husbands and wives, listen to me. Those who are single parents and and who know and who are in a relationship with the child's mother or father, listen to me when I say this. Do not argue. Do not fight in front of your kids. Number one, do your best by the glory of God and for the sake of his name not to argue, not to tear each other down with words because what you're doing is destroying that person's soul bit by bit. And if that person does not see themselves as God created them in the image of God and if they are not a strong Christian, their soul, when you use those words, are, are, is being damaged and bruised bit by bit. And people lie and they say sticks and stones may break my bones but words will never. That is the biggest lie I've ever heard words have a way of hurting way worse than a physical bruise because many times a physical bruise will heal but when you're at home late at night by yourself we have a tendency to think about what someone has said do not use our words to harm another person James says And it's not the big fire. It's not necessarily the big. He says it's the small words. The the small things that we say can have a huge impact on that person's soul. And definitely on the kids. See, I remember that feeling. I was younger. Until about I was the age of eight and nine. My parents had a very tumultuous relationship. A very verbally abusive relationship. And I remember hearing them argue at the drop of a dime. We're having dinner. It's sunny outside. And all of a sudden at our kitchen table, there's a lightning bolt. One person says one thing. The other person says another thing. Silence for 15 minutes. They run upstairs, close the door. And it's as if the door isn't even closed. As they tear each other apart with their words. I remember the feeling of sitting in a corner with my sister, my older sister, arm around me saying, it's going to be okay. And she wept, just begging them to stop setting each other on fire. And many of us, we do the same thing. 
And it's right after we leave church on Sunday morning worship and our children are looking and they're saying, what about the gospel? What about the Sunday school lesson? What about the memory verse? Why are you burning each other with your words? And James is saying, be careful. Be careful, my brothers. Remember Christ. As I write you, I remember him and how he spoke. Be careful. Some of us Sunday evening, the time for us to become the CMZ of the Christian world. We think it's okay to get on the phone and to review everything that happened that morning. Oh, girl, how was church today? Church, it was all right. Pastor was up there talking about something for an hour and two minutes. I don't know what. I just remember the one part he said. I could, yeah. Small fires. Small, small fires. We think it's not harming. We think that it's not hurting. But the person who's listening soul is being affected. Their spirit is being affected. And if they're weak, that attitude, that spirit is going to transfer to them. And then when they talk to someone, it's the same thing. And before you know it, you got 15 negative people. Small fires. Gossip is a sad thing. It's a dangerous thing. It's a, it's a destroying thing. The Gospels as well as the Proverbs talks about gospel gossipers a whole lot and slanders and, and backbiters. And the interesting thing about gossipers is, is that gossipers don't know or recognize when they're gossiping. When I find myself outside of the will of God saying something that I should not be saying, a lot of times we disguise it and say, I really needed to tell that person that information. Or they're not going to run and tell anybody else. That's just between us. It's just between us. Or we hide it, don't we? Huh? Huh? Oh, girl. You see that dress she had on today? I know. It was just, just short, wasn't it? Mm. Sister in shape. No, she needs a longer dress than that. And I'm not gossiping, but the only reason I'm telling you this is because I think we should pray for her. Let's pray for her. Let's, let's pray for her. Get off the phone, don't pray. <laughs> Y'all so silly, amen. Find a creative way. But what I've learned about people who struggle with gossip and seriousness, and, and some of us, as we say amen, we know that it's us. Amen. amen. We all have areas that we need to work in. Praise God for grace. But normally when a person is gossiping, they feel the need to be needed. And the reason that they do that is because at that moment, it's almost an adrenaline rush of, I feel important. I know something that you don't. Let me put you on. But behind that is some deep issues of insecurity. Some deep issues that, 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 that cause us to be jealous and, and, and it's really envy or, or, or self-centeredness that says, I need to be needed by you. As Christians, we must see that gossip 
is damaging. Gossip is dark. Using our tongue against the ones whom God has created is horrible. And look at what James says about this small fire. The next part, he says these words, and the tongue is a small, is a, is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. A world of unrighteousness? My tongue? He's saying a tongue that is not in control of Christ is a tongue that is out of control. It's a whole world. When I hear this phrase, a world of unrighteousness, I think of a terrorist group. I think of Al-Qaeda. I think of something that's dark, something that's underground. I think of pedophilia. I, I think of dominatrix and pornography. I think of the sex trade. I think of things that's, that's nasty and filthy. And James has said, when we are not allowing Christ to control and tame our tongue, it's a world of filth. What does it do? It sets on fire, he says. It stains the whole body. And it sets on fire, he says, the entire course of life. The entire course of life. Our whole life can be changed by our tongue or controlled by our tongue. I read a recent article on Yahoo.com. And the article told about a man who was playing golf this past week and just routinely hitting a golf ball, playing his 18 holes. And he hit the ball, and the ball hit a rock that was in the forest and caused a spark. And the spark caused a fire. And according to the general manager of Shady Canyon Golf Course, Stephen Buck, he says that the fire grew Huge and covered 25 acres. It took 150 firefighters to put that fire out. A small spark set this whole course's image <laughs> in a negative way. People were writing all week, how does this happen? A small word can set a person's whole life in the wrong course. But look at this quickly. He goes on to say, And the tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life. Look at this. And set on fire by hell. Do you see that? Look at verse 7 and verse 8. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. James is showing us something here that we can't miss. And what James is showing us is this. He says that when we use our tongue in a way that does not honor and glorify God, he's saying we are under the control of a, sat a satanic oppression. We are under the control of Satan. He says that the tongue is set on fire by hell. He's saying that Satan is behind a person who does not have an untamed tongue. And this person doesn't have to be a believer. This person can be a believer. This person can be in the presence of God after just preaching the gospel, sharing a testimony. We see in Matthew chapter 16, Peter makes a great confession when Jesus asks him a question, who does man say that I am? He says, you are Jesus, the son of the living God. 
And then he continues, Jesus begins to share the gospel and tell him how he must suffer and how he must die. And Peter stands up and says, God forbid you will not die. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, get thee behind me. Not Peter. Not my disciple. Not my brother. Not my homie, home skillet. He says, get behind me, Satan. Satan. Satan is behind our speech. Hell is setting our tongue on fire when we are speaking words to harm other people and words that is anti-gospel. We are under the influence of Satan. And some of us know what it's like to talk when we're under the influence. Huh? You're liable to say anything. Hey, man. What if somebody messed up and instead of putting stop on a stop sign, they put go? Set on fire by hell. And then he gives a shout out to the Louisville Zoo and Orkin Pest Control. And he says, for every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. He says, listen, you got Orkin, you've got the zoo. We can tame all these different beasts, but no one can tame the tongue. Now look at this imagery. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison, a restless evil. This is a great image of Satan. In Genesis chapter 2, we see Satan coming. And we see in the beginning of Genesis, Satan is is using his tongue to deceive Adam and Eve as a serpent. And he is speaking to them. He is restless, looking to mess up what God has created because Satan is anti-gospel. Anything anti-God, anything that is created by God, Satan wants to pervert. He wants to change. He wants to make it dirty and filthy. God used words to create the earth. Let there be light and the earth was created. God uses the preached word to bring life to people who are dead in their trespasses and sins. And Satan wants to take the tongue. He wants to take speech. And instead of hope, he wants to use it for hopelessness. He is restless in Job chapter 1. We see Satan having a conversation with God. God says, where have you been, Satan? Satan says, I have been to and fro. He's restless, walking the earth up and down. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, we see that the Bible says that Satan is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Genesis chapter 4, we see Cain offering a bogus sacrifice to God. God says, you worship me the right way. Everything will be okay if you don't. Sin is crouching at the gate. James says, when our tongue is not being used for the gospel, is not being saturated in Christ, it is a restless evil. 
The only one that can tame it. The only one that can stop it. Our only hope is Christ. Last thing that we must recognize quickly. We must recognize the foolishness of double talk. We must recognize the foolishness of double talk. Verse 9, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? No. Or a grapevine produce figs, neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. We see James giving two great illustrations. Once again, a fig tree can't. A fig tree can't produce olives. Just like a grapevine cannot produce figs. Well shouldn't produce water that we can drink along with salt water. James is saying, in the same way, a Christian shouldn't have double talk. He says, with the same mouth come two messages. With the same mouth comes a blessing of our Lord, comes praise be to God. And then with the same mouth, we curse people. And he doesn't say pastors. He doesn't say Christians. He says people that are in the image of God. No matter how bad or how dirty or how lost a person is, we shouldn't use our mouth to curse them because God created them. He says that double talk is foolish. It's foolish. Christians' language should be exemplary to the world. Christians shouldn't have to put asterisks when they write or text someone. As if the asterisk cannot be figured out for the letters. Huh? A Christian speech should be seasoned with salt. It should draw people to know Christ. Husbands, how would you feel? If your wife walked in the room, she looked at you, and says, you know, the reason why I love you so much is because you're so intelligent. Then she walks out. A second later, she walks back in and says, you know, the reason why I hate you so much is because you sure are unattractive. Double talk. That husband will look. And forget about the first statement of being intelligent and act very unintelligent. But yet, is this not how many Christians are? Sunday morning, we lift our hands and praise to a holy and righteous God. We tell him that he's beautiful, that he's awesome, that he's perfect, that he's good, that he's sovereign, that he's triune, that he's immutable. He's so providential and so good. We lift our hands and praises to him. But soon after, when we leave, 
We curse our brothers, our sisters, our husbands, our, our wives. We use the same language that the world is using to describe how we feel. My brothers, he says, this ought not be so. Use your words to build up, not to tear down, to plant, not to uproot, to pray, P-R-A-Y, not to pray, P-R-E-Y, to heal, not to wound, to share the gospel and not the gossip. Please use your tongues against the kingdom of Satan and for the kingdom of Christ. Least one day. Just like the false teachers, least one day we stand before God and we are reminded by the words of Christ in Matthew chapter 12, verse 36 through 37, when he says, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word that they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. The only way that we're not going to be condemned, the only way that we're going to be justified is if we cry out and beg God to come into our hearts to save us. The only way that we will be justified is if we wage war against our own desires and stop living for our own advantage and live for the advantage of Christ. The only way that we will be justified is if we truly receive the implanted word with meekness and truly look at Christ's example. Do we remember that example about how Christ came through 42 lines of, of generation through a virgin Mary and how he lived a sinless life for us and was persecuted by the religious leaders taken from judgment hall to judgment hall and while he was in those judgment halls he didn't use his mouth to tear them down he didn't curse them he did not he didn't say a a word that would infringe upon who he is but he continued to humble himself he could have said you know I created you I can tell you your great 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 grandma's grandma's name but no for the sake of my children I am going to take this I'm going to take this punishment I'm going to take this wrath. He prayed in the garden of Gethsemane. He could have prayed, Lord, help me to not, to not go irate and not to say anything. He just said, Lord, help me to please you. He, he could have, when he was walking down the Via Della Rosa, that road of sorrow, stopped and cursed everybody out. But he didn't. He kept going. He could have, when nails was being put in his arms, cursed the men that were putting it in his arms and in his feet. But he didn't. He kept going. He could have hung upon on Calvary's cross and cursed them out but instead of using the F word he used another F word Father I forgive them please Father do not charge them for what they do he could have stopped there but he allowed his body to be buried in Joseph's borrowed tomb and on Sunday morning he rose with all power and he gave us the power to tame our tongue this restless evil and he said not only have I given you all power but I'm coming back for you and while I'm in heaven I'm going to use my tongue to intercede to my father on your behalf I'm so glad that we saw Service God who is able to help us to overcome all of our weaknesses, all of our ills, all of our shortcomings. I'm so glad that there is one who can tame the tongue for us, and his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. 
His name is the bread of life. His name is Emmanuel. They cried, Hosanna, save us. May we cry, Hosanna, save us. May we beg God to help us to tame our tongue for his glory and namesake. Let us pray. Father, we can't help ourselves. We need your help. Please help us. Please help our hearts so that we would use our mouths to draw people and not to drive them, to love people and not to look down on them. Help us, Father. In Christ's name.